All right, Matthew 5, 1 to 4. Matthew 5, verses 1 to 4. And uh, just for my, uh, uh, for my knowledge here, how many of you actually brought a traditional Bible? Raise it up high. Okay, we're still Bible believers. And then how many bought, brought tonight a non-traditional Bible, like an iPhone? And, and I think there's more of that in our church than, than the traditional. Well, I believe all Bibles should, you know, this is black, but I believe that all Bibles should be read. Did you get it? All Bibles should be read. And Nate, uh, Kelly, did you take on a Bible challenge? And what was your Bible challenge? The Gospels, yes, praise the Lord. How many took on the Bible challenge of the Gospels? Raise your hand. How many did Psalms and Proverbs? And how many did the entire New Testament? Okay, just a few of the hearty ones. And uh, what do you think, Bob? Was it a blessing for you? Very good. And it is like 10 to 12 chapters a day. And you have to stick with it because if you miss one, then the next day you have to read 20 to 25 chapters. And so you better stick with it, right? Absolutely. All right, Matthew 5, verses 1 to 4. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And may God bless his word to our hearts. But he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We talked about this last Wednesday, being poor in spirit. It's not talking about being poor in money or physical poverty, but poor in spirit, in spirit. And that really is humility of spirit. For the Bible tells us that God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. The humble... He gives power to, he gives grace to. Blessed are the humble in spirit or the poor in spirit. When you're poor in spirit, you lack self-confidence and self-reliance. What I mean by that is you lack a confidence in yourself and a reliance upon yourself. You realize that you lack the power, the ability, the wherewithal to accomplish God's purposes within yourself. You realize that you need heaven, you need grace, you need power, you need God to accomplish what God has called you to do. Uh, You cannot bear spiritual fruit without the Spirit of God. And you cannot have increase in growth because only God gives increase, right? Jesus says, without me, you can do nothing. So that's being poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is a helplessness and a powerlessness before God. You literally, when you're poor in spirit, a humble of heart, you stand before God and say, Lord, I do not bring my power or my wisdom to bear here. I do not look at myself as the answer. Uh, I, I, am, I, I am looking to you. You know, poor in spirit, the posture of being poor in spirit is to kneel before the Lord. You know, the idea of prayer. You know, you're kneeling before God. You're humbling yourself. When you're kneeling before the Lord, what you're asking him. You're seeking him. You, you need him to come to you, to direct you, to empower you. The Bible says you're happy or blessed. Blessed means happy. Why? When you're poor in spirit? Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. That's why you're happy and blessed. The rule and reign of Christ is in your heart. God's power and grace flows to you when you are poor or humble in your spirit. He gives grace 
to the humble. So that's why you're happy is because what, what really makes us happy, joyful, true lasting joy, the joy of the Lord, is when God pours into us, when God is helping us, when God is empowering us. That's the idea there. The kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is another way of saying the rule and reign of Christ. He's the king of the kingdom. His throne is upon our hearts. So when the kingdom of God is within you, it means Jesus, the king, is on the inside of you. He's sitting on your heart. He's ruling and reigning in your life. His will is being expressed. His power is being expressed. His grace is being expressed in you and through you. That is ultimately what makes us happy. Unhappy people are proud people. Because flesh is never satisfied. Am I right about that? How do you become poor in spirit? You admit your need for God, and you ask God for help. And there's a great parable that Jesus gave between a proud person and a humble, or one who is poor in spirit. It's out of Luke chapter 18, verses 10 to 14. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I'll tell you what, it's better to be like that tax collector, humble in heart. You know, he stood before God, shall we say, needy, dependent, aware of his own inner poverty. Is that a good way to put that? Aware of his own inner poverty. And the Pharisee is like that church in the book of Revelation. Was it the Laodicea church? But you are rich and increased with goods, and you say you have need of nothing. But really, you're poor and wretched, blind and naked. Oh, may God help us to see ourselves accurately. A healthy spiritual leader, a healthy Christian, is humble, dependent upon God, and puts no confidence in the flesh. He realizes God is his source and power He is poor in spirit. When you're poor in spirit, the spirit there is small s, not big s. When you're poor in spirit or humble of heart, you're rich in God. You can walk around with God confidence, God reliance. You can rest in the Lord. You know, uh, Kelly talked about being fearful or anxious and, you know, trying to sleep and, uh, you know, that's You're not trusting the Lord or you're trying to think it through and try to solve issues maybe as you're thinking it through and how can I manage the situation. But when you're humble, you're asking God to come upon the scene and to do what only God can do. Amen, church? That's being poor in spirit. And when you're poor in spirit, when you have that humility of heart, it helps you take a step into the next beatitude because the proud will never mourn. Not the way 
Jesus is teaching here in the Beatitudes. The proud will never mourn. So let's take a look at this next one. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What does it mean to mourn? Well, it means you mourn your personal sins and your sinful condition. You mourn with what the Bible calls a godly sorrow. You grieve over your sins. Now, this is very healthy to do this. Very healthy to do this. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, godly sorrow. So there is a godly sorrow. You might think, well, the Lord never wants me to be sorrowful. Well, there is a godly sorrow, right? There is a godly sorrow. Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world. So there's a sorrow of the world and a sorrow that's of God, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Well, let's take a look at this godly sorrow, this inner mourning, this inner mourning, this godly sorrow. Have you ever wept before God because of the condition of your soul, because of your conduct, because of your bad behavior, because of blowing it again, and you just you get so grieved, and it's godly sorrow, so it's put there by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. If you're before the Lord, and you're not calloused, you're not hard-hearted, you're not flippant, you're not making excuses. Well, Lord, I was having a bad day, and that's why I did what I did. And, you know, that's making an excuse, right? You're not making excuses. But you are literally grieving or mourning over what you've done because you have sinned against a holy God. Godly sorrow leads to repentance, not to be regretted. You know, you won't change your mind on that. So let's take a look at the idea of the conviction of the Spirit. And I want to get some feedback on this. The conviction of the Spirit and the condemnation of the devil. Conviction of the Spirit, of the Spirit of God, from God. He convicts you. Another word for convict is convinces you that you have sinned, right? And then there's condemnation of the devil. The Bible says that condemnation is not of God, but conviction is of God. What are the characteristics of the conviction of the Spirit as compared to or contrasted with the condemnation of of the devil. In other words, how do you know? You're feeling bad. Well, that's the devil. Devil, I rebuke you. Well, maybe it was the Holy Spirit. Maybe it was the Holy Spirit. Or maybe the Holy Spirit, or maybe, maybe the devil is condemning you and you're receiving it and you're thinking it's the Spirit. Or maybe the Spirit and you're thinking it's the devil. Well, you need to be able to discern. Well, let's talk about discerning the difference between conviction of the Spirit and condemnation of the devil. What are some of the characteristics that are of the Spirit and the characteristics that are of the devil? Yes. God will show you in the Bible areas that we... But the devil used the Bible on Jesus. Okay. But then the devil will say, it's all right. God's not talking to you. You're not listening to God then. 
Okay, so the, so the Lord comes and brings something out of the Word, and the devil convinces you that's not God. That's right. Okay, very good. Okay, so very good. So conviction brings change. Condemnation brings shame. So conviction, so godless sorrow leads you to repentance, which is a change of direction or a change of mind, right? So that's very good. And then condemnation is like a shame. But one thing I will say about that, and that's really good, is sometimes the Spirit of God makes you feel ashamed of what you did because it was shameful. Excuse me? Not to leave us there. Very good. So the Holy Spirit, you might, he might make you feel ashamed of your sins, but it leads you to that repentance. that repentance, and the devil leaves you in that place of guilty shame. All right, very good. I like that. Yes? Okay, so if it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there'll be hope there, like hope for forgiveness or... Change. Okay. The, so the devil leaves you hopeless feeling. The Spirit of God gives you hope. Just a couple more. These are all really good. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. A lot of great stuff. I know a lot of you can't hear that. So uh, the condemnation of the devil is very general. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is specific. So if it's of the Holy Spirit, and I'm, I'm not just repeating what he's saying. I'm, I'm actually agreeing with this. But it's of the Holy Spirit, he will be very specific. You have sinned here. And the devil will be very general or hazy. Give you a sense that things aren't right. You know, it's general sense. And then... Uh, I forgot what else you said because it's also good. Okay, right. Okay, so the devil keeps, so it, the devil can bring up something that was specific, but let's say you've already asked the Lord to forgive you, but the devil keeps hounding you on that. Keeps hounding you. Well, you really aren't forgiven. You really aren't forgiven. But the Bible says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you, and you need to receive your forgiveness, right? So you can walk around with what the Bible calls a false guilt. There's a guilt from the Holy Spirit. It's not wrong to feel guilty or to feel shame if it's of the Spirit that motivates you to turn to God and receive your forgiveness forgiveness and confess your sin, and then he wipes away that shame and the guilt. But you can walk around with a false guilt, a false guilt, and that's put on you by yourself or by the devil or a combination of the two. You agree with what the devil's saying and you feel guilty before the Lord and you're no longer guilty before the Lord because he's forgiven you, but you're just kind of carrying it. And so well done on that. I'll, I'll read to you some of the stuff that I have. Worldly sorrow is different than godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is sorry over the consequences of sin 
or it responds with bitterness or resentment. Because 2 Corinthians 7, 9 says, the sorrow of the world produces death, whereas godly sorrow leads you to repentance. Condemnation is hazy, leads you away from Jesus, and makes you feel defeated before God. Conviction of the Holy Spirit is specific, it draws you to Jesus, and it comes with enabling grace. Many years ago, and this scenario was brought out as an example, but many years ago, I had a person in my church come to me, and they said, Pastor, you need to help me. Something is wrong between me and God. Something is wrong between me and God. I just sense it. I feel so condemned. And I said, well, what is it? I don't know. And how long have you been carrying this? For months. Have you asked God to show it to you? Yes, but I just don't know what it is. And my counsel to him was, or her, (laughs) this is not of God. If you're sincerely asking God, show me, God will tell you. He won't play hide and seek with you. He will show you. And you don't have to walk around with a sense of guilt or condemnation before something's not right for months and the Lord not revealing it to you. You don't have to walk around with that. When you sincerely pray and ask the Lord to reveal what it is, like in Psalm 139, search me, O God. Know me, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the path of everlasting life. That's a prayer that God will answer. And he will, you know, when, who was it, when the deaf man came to Jesus, and he healed the man of his deafness, in one of those instances, he put his fingers in the man's ears. In other words, he touched the problem. Jesus will place his finger on your sin, and he will show you And like you said, he'll use the scriptures many times, or the preached word, or maybe you're in prayer, or maybe, uh, you know, as soon as you sin with that thought or that word, that deed, whatever it might be, as soon as you do it, all of a sudden you are aware, man, I have sinned against the Lord. And uh, you just know what it is. You know what it is. That makes sense? Blessed are they that mourn, mourn. So you're mourning your personal sins or your sinful condition. It's a godly sorrow. It leads to repentance. You receive your forgiveness. There's restoration. You're in a right relationship with God yet again. I think that's what we need to believe God for. So a tale of the two men, Judas and Peter. They both sinned the night in which he was betrayed. Judas betrayed the Lord with 30 pieces of silver, and Peter denied the Lord and also forsook the Lord and fled. Denied him three times, right? Judas was remorseful, and Peter was remorseful. Judas went out and hanged himself, and Peter was restored back to right relation with Jesus and recommissioned by the Lord, and he became a leading apostle. Hmm. Let's take a look at this Judas. He never truly mourned over his sins. He never truly repented. In the life of Judas, he stole money. He was the treasurer. Mr. Wig. He stole money. He criticized Jesus. Remember the woman was uh, anointing him. And this is a waste. This could have been sold and given to the poor. I mean, that's a criticism of Jesus. He betrayed Jesus with a kiss. So he was disloyal. 
Judas never called Jesus Lord. You know, like Thomas, my Lord and my God. Judas never called Jesus Lord or had a personal profession of faith that the Bible talks about. If ever Jesus called Judas, if ever Judas called Jesus anything, he called him rabbi, which means teacher. Never Lord. Judas regretted his decision, but did not repent of his sins. Hmm. Difference, right? He was very sorry. But what what would you say Judas was sorry for? Getting caught? Getting caught? Judas was sorry for... Anything else? Excuse me? Knowing the truth too late? Judas was sorry maybe for the consequences? I don't think Judas thought that Jesus would be captured and put to death. You know, but he's seeing this happen. You know, because the scripture says that I'm going to read here. You know, he he knew that he had betrayed innocent blood. And so, blood, you know, the idea that Jesus is going to be put to death. And so, getting caught, uh, realizing the truth too late, uh, the consequences of sin. And so, people can feel bad about what they did because what they did has produced consequences. But that's not mourning like Jesus says, will ultimately make you happy because the Bible says Jesus, uh, Judas went out and hanged himself. So Matthew 27, verses 3 to 5, then Judas, his betrayer, seeing he had been condemned, was remorseful. And uh, not, you know, I don't get too much into the Greek, but that Greek word remorseful is metamelomai, which means a regret. And when it talks about Peter repenting, it uses the word metanoia which means a change of mind. So even, even the word regret and remorseful, if you read it in the, in, the, in the English, it doesn't give you the true sense if you read it in the Greek. So he was metamelomai. He was remorseful, but not repentant with godly sorrow. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The idea that he said innocent blood, I think he knew at that time that Jesus was, that they were looking to put him to death. And they said, what is that to us? Aren't they godly, godly guys here? (laughs) What is that to us? They They don't care that he was, quote, innocent. You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself, which is also a sin. It's a sin to hang yourself. A self, you know, suicide is self-murder. We do, we are we do not have, we do not have the right to put somebody to death. I'm talking about individuals, not not government. We do not have the right to put somebody to death. Nor do we have the right to take our own life. That's putting ourselves in the place of God. These decisions uh, rest with God. That's why I think a true biblical view or perspective, a true biblical worldview is that we are against the putting a death of innocent blood from the moment of conception to the day of death. So that includes abortion, infanticide, suicide, assisted suicide, these type of things. Uh, Revenge killings, these things are not right in the sight of God. 
You guys agree with that, don't you? Now, the capital punishment, putting somebody to death for premeditated murder like we would have the death penalty in America, I think that is, according to the teachings of the Bible, biblical. But that is not done by an individual. That's done through government that God set up to be a terror to those that do evil. No. But I'm getting off, off track here. So there's Judas. <laughs> He's remorseful. It's metamelamai in the Greek. It's not the type of remorse that leads to repentance, but the remorse that is just sorry over consequences, all right? In a way, that defies comprehension. Judas persistently resisted and rejected God's truth, God's grace, and even God's Son. He concealed his wicked rebellion from everyone but Jesus. And he was good at this, wasn't he? Even when Jesus fingered him at the, at, uh, the Last Supper, he says, one of you is going to betray me, and not a single one of those disciples had a clue. And Jesus even publicly says, it's you, Judas, and he goes out and to, to do the, the, the evil deed, and the disciples are, hmm, is he going to buy some more bread? Or what's he up to? I mean, the disciples were thick, man. <laughs> they were dull. But that also tells you that Judas was just hiding these things in his heart, right? Just hiding his evil in his heart. He concealed his wicked rebellion from everyone but Jesus. Judas's remorse was not repentance, but rather emotional remorse. Judas's remorse led him to guilt and despair. Judas made no effort to rescue Jesus. He only tried to solve his own conscience by returning the 30 pieces of silver. I mean, Judas could have gone to Pilate. He could have gone to, you know, and done all he could to rescue Jesus. But he didn't. He just went out and hanged himself. So that's Judas. Well, what about Peter? Well, Peter repented of his sins. We understand that there's so many different things in the scriptures after his denial that lead me to believe that Peter repented of his sins. If you think about it, uh, right after he denied the Lord, when Jesus resurrected, a number of days after Jesus resurrected, what are, what are the, some of the things that you think of that give you real confidence that Peter had a godly sorrow that led to real repentance and ultimately restoration with Jesus Christ? Excuse me? He, he had a broken and contrite spirit. He did. He did. And I'll read a passage that tells us that. Anything else that you can? Yes. Yeah, he commissioned, he recommissioned Peter, right? Yes. Yeah, three, three questions for the three denials. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And, and Peter reaffirmed his love for Jesus. And after each time he reaffirmed his love for Jesus, Jesus would commission Peter. Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, right? Go and do this. I think that's great. There's, there's one, and these are great. These are the two that I thought. There's one other one that I was thinking. Yes. Right after he realized he heard the rooster crow, he ran 
He wept bitterly. That's right. That's some serious godly sorrow, weeping bitterly, right? Yes, and that goes with what you were talking about, how he had a broken spirit. He wept. Peter ran to the tomb, right? You know, if you're condemned to the devil, you, you like... Yeah, he, he, uh, he, you know, if you have a worldly sorrow, you, you have that condemnation, you kind of hide yourself from God, kind of like Adam and Eve, they hid from the presence of the Lord. But Peter, man, he's running to that tomb. That's good, I like that. Yes? Yeah, Peter was in that boat, and it was the Lord, and he jumped into the boat and swam to the shore, right? Kind of like running to the tomb, swimming to the shore. And uh, one other one, when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he gave specific instruction, and go and tell Peter. I also think that uh, that shows that Peter had repented, that Jesus had forgiven him, and go and tell Peter was Jesus' way of saying, Peter, I love you. You're still part of the team. Am I right about that? And Luke 22, it says, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. John 21, 17, this is one that Daniela talked about. He said to him the third time, Simon, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And so that uh, whole passage there in John 21, when Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? You know, that is interesting in the Greek. That is interesting in the Greek. You know, there's different words for love in the Greek. One is agape, which means that'd be the high, what we consider the highest level of love, where you're willing to lay down your life for God so loved. That's the word agape. He was willing. He sacrificed himself, you know, the laying down of your life type of love. Another word is like once you get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, like a friendship love, a brotherly love. That's phileo, Philadelphia. And so in this conversation, Jesus is talking to Peter. This is when he he dove in the water, swam to the shore. Jesus has food ready. Come and dine, you know. That's another sign that he was restored to fellowship. He's ready to come and dine with them, to fellowship with them around a meal. But uh, Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, do you agape me? Love me with a a love that's willing to lay down your life. And Peter says, Lord, I phileo you. I love you like a brother, like a friend. So Jesus asks him a second time, Peter, do you agape me? Lord, I phileo you. So Jesus asks him a third time, Peter, do you phileo me? Peter, Lord, you know I love you with phileo, a brotherly friendship. Isn't that interesting? Peter, do you uh, love me like a laying down of your life? 
Lord, I, I love you like a friend. Peter, do you love me? You're willing to lay down your life? Lord, I love you like a friend. Peter, do you love me like a friend? Lord, you know I love you like a friend. He couldn't say he loved him with an agape love because he, he saved his life that night, right? He denied the Lord because he was afraid of being found out and being arrested and put to death. He wasn't ready to lay down his life. And so Peter's being truthful. He's being very honest, saying, Lord, I love you just, I love you like a friend. And that's why he's so grieved the third time, because the third time Jesus says, do you, Peter, do you, really, you just, you love me like a friend? Yes, Lord, like a friend. Well, the Lord knows how much we love him. And uh, Peter got restored and uh, filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and counted himself worthy to suffer shame for his name there in the book of Acts, chapter 4, I believe it is. And church, church, church tradition has him crucified upside down for the sake of the Lord. I mean, God did a real work in that man. And he does a real work in us. Amen? Blessed are pastors, Christian leaders, moms and dads, husbands and wives who mourn. Why is that? Well, because when we mourn, we get comforted. That's why we get happy, because of the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But I remember uh, a number of years ago, uh, a pastor, he was a South African pastor, and we had gone and uh, spent some time there. I think it was... uh, Oh, what was the name of that ministry there in South Africa? We actually took a, took a mission trip. Do you remember that? Was it Thrive Africa? I think it was Thrive Africa. And uh, a husband and wife had bought a game park uh, for real cheap because it was being auctioned off, and they were the only bid, and they got this huge game park, and it had all the, all the facilities and everything, and they established a mission center there, and we sent a team from Cornerstone. Anybody here went to that one? From You did. What was the name of that ministry? It was Thrive Africa, right. Okay, and uh, Neil, Elise and Neil, I think were their names, husband and wife. And my wife and I visited as well, and we taught the, uh, the pastors that they were connected with there. It's just a beautiful work. Well, they had a secretary, and the pastor uh, had an affair with the secretary. And uh, he came to the States, and we were a supporting church. We were supporting them as a church. This was a number of years ago. We were supporting them. And uh, this is all public knowledge, so I don't feel like I'm saying anything that uh, is not known. It's all out there. So we were supporting them. So he wanted to meet with me, and so he came, and we went to Highland House, and we talked, and uh, he was broken. Man, he's weeping. And, and uh, he asked me if we would still support him in the ministry because he didn't want to lose the ministry. I said, I said, Pastor, if you turn to your wife and turn back to God and renounce this adulterous relationship, I will consider it. But if you don't, no, I won't support you. And I want to tell you this, you're going to lose all your support. And he started weeping, and I was sitting right out there in my car. He just starts weeping in my car. And he's, 
he decided, I could tell, he was choosing. He's not going to turn to God and renounce this adulterous relationship and go back to his wife and make things right with God, with her, with everything he needed to make right. He was set on divorcing her and marrying this woman. And that's exactly what he did. And he lost that ministry. He lost that uh, whole compound, that that whole uh, animal safari area that he had right there in central South Africa. He lost it all. And I remember thinking, you know, he's a, he just wept in my car. But he wept because of the consequences that had come into his life. He wept that pastors like me weren't, go- weren't going to support him anymore, that he was going to lose it all. But he, he, wasn't, he wasn't weeping like, I am so grieved that I have done this and I need to go turn back to God and turn back to my wife and restore this marriage. And if God would be so gracious to restore me back to ministry, that would be awesome. He wasn't weeping like that. He was weeping that we weren't supporting him anymore, that it had brought consequences. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he was without comfort. I wasn't giving him false comfort. I wasn't going to say, yes, we will support you. We will support you. And God loves you no matter what you do. I wasn't giving that type of comfort. I told him, if you do this, we will not support you. That's just, and we didn't. As soon as we saw the handwriting on the wall, we ended our support. And she, she was American. He was South African by birth. She was American she came back to the States. I ended up connecting with her at a uh, leadership conference, and she was doing much better, and God was restoring her life, and she had turned to God. But that husband of hers uh, ended up marrying that uh, secretary, and they're trying to make a go of it, but, you know, they lost a lot. He lost a lot, that's for sure. Blessed are pastors, leaders, Christians who mourn with a godly sorrow. King Saul Refused to mourn over his sins, he lost his kingdom. Samson refused to mourn over his sins, he lost his anointing. David, however, we know his sin is right there in the black and white in the Bible, adultery and murder, he was restored back to God. He writes two psalms, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. They're what they call penitential psalms, penitence. You know, remorse, repentance, confession of sin, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, and uh, both have to do with his great sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah. Psalm 32, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Selah. Boy, that's great stuff, isn't it? So his transgression was forgiven. His sin was covered, covered by the precious blood of Jesus. The Lord did not impute iniquity to him. What does that mean? You know, that, that word impute is like a, a charge. Like if you, you go and buy something and you charge it to your credit card and then that charge is put on your account and you have to pay the price. The Lord did not impute or charge the sin of adultery and murder to his account to where he had to pay the price for it. 
because he confessed it, the Lord forgave it. Now, he had some consequences, that was, but his eternal soul was intact. Am I right about that? God was still able to use him after that. And uh, Psalm 51 is a great one as well. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. When we confess our sin, because 1 John 1 9 says we're supposed to confess our sin, the word confess means to say the same thing that God says. So when we confess our sins, we call it like God calls it. Lord, it was a mistake. No, God does not forgive mistakes. He forgives sins, transgressions. Sin is like missing the mark. You know, like you shoot the arrow and you miss the mark. A transgression is like you're overstepping the bounds. So sin is, man, I missed it there. I should have done this and I didn't. Or transgression, you overstep. You step outside God's moral laws. Sins, transgressions, iniquities. Iniquities are sinful bents. Sinful bents. We're born in sin and conceived in iniquity. Sinful bents. You're wired that way. You're twisted that way. Uh, a sinful bent is like that sin that does so easily beset you. It's just rooted in you. God forgives these things. You confess your sin, your transgressions, your iniquities. Lord, and you call it the way God calls it. Lord, this is adultery. Lord, this is lust. Lord, this was anger. Lord, this was Gossip, Lord, whatever it might be. Understand what I'm saying? You call it what God calls it. God forgives that. You confess your sin to the Lord. Psalm 77, verse 10. Are you putting these up there? Put that up there, the Passion Translation. Man, this gets me. Talking about godly sorrow, mourning. Lord, what wounds me most, wounds, you know, God, man, this is... This, causes me heartache, sorrow. Lord, what wounds me most is that it's somehow my fault that you've changed your heart towards me, and I no longer see the years of the mighty one and your right hand of power. You know, so that, that psalmist there, he's talking about the Lord, and basically, Lord, man, it just grieves me that, Lord, that I have done something that caused me, that caused you to be disappointed in me, or you not to be open to me, or that your hand somehow to be against me, or that you've changed towards me. Oh, Lord, I don't want you to change towards me. I want to have that blessed fellowship again. I just, that just is a, it's a haunting uh, a translation of Psalm 77, verse 10. Lord, what wounds me most is that it's somehow my fault. And, you know, when you confess your sin, you stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm guilty. It's my fault. I did this. It's not like Adam. It's the woman you gave me, you know. That you've changed your heart towards me. Well, I, I, don't, wanna, I don't want God to change his heart towards me because of my rebellion. I want him to be blessed the work of his, my hands. I want his right hand to be upon me. I want to walk in fellowship with the Lord. Somebody say amen to that. Amen. Hmm. 
Why are we happy when we truly mourn? Because we have the promise that we're going to be comforted. Comfort comes from the forgiveness of sins. Judas was never comforted because he didn't mourn. The biblical way. Comfort comes from the comforter, the Holy Spirit. Comfort comes from restoration to fellowship and ministry. Comfort comes so you might comfort others. Isn't that a blessing? God could take these things and turn it to now we can help others. The world offers false comfort, the comfort of alcohol, drugs, busyness, work, self-pity, the comfort that comes from pleasure or entertainment, but it's all false, it's all temporary. We understand that, right? The Bible says Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He wept over Jerusalem. Now, Jesus never mourned his personal sins because he was without sin. But Jesus certainly mourned or grieved over the sins of others. And thank God we have a high priest who ever liveth to make intercession for us. Somebody say amen to that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. All right. Anybody have a closing comment? And then I'm shutting her down. Yes. I just think it's fitting how Peter denies the Lord, goes back and starts fishing, right? And then Jesus comes back and says, do you love me? And then he says, wait for the Holy Spirit. And then you come to Acts. And who's the first person to speak, to come out and address the crowd? Here's a different Peter than we've ever seen. He's completely restored. So, like, he went back to fishing. He didn't know what to do. He felt guilt from that. God came, Jesus came and forgave him for that. And then he, or not, you know, gave him forgiveness. And then Peter comes out and he just, you know, starts preaching the word. And so it was a complete restoration. You can see in those, in those days after that. Yeah, very good. I like that. Could you all hear that? Yeah, it's had, had a good voice there. Yeah, and another thing about that, yeah, that's wonderful. Another thing that I've often thought of as well is, you know, when Jesus was arrested, he was taken to uh, really it stood before Caiaphas and the religious leaders, what we call the Sanhedrin, and stood trial. And it was there, he's in the courtyard, and this false trial is going on amongst the Pharisees and Sadducees, these religious leaders. And Peter was there. And saw all that power vested in them. And, of course, he saw Jesus condemned to death and crucified. And, of course, he really failed that situation, right? He didn't pass the test. He denied the Lord. And then uh, he gets filled with the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then they start doing miracles. He gets arrested. And he gets threatened and let go. And then he gets arrested again by these religious leaders and he's really in the exact same place as when he denied the Lord. And uh, they even threatened that they're going to beat him if he doesn't stop preaching Jesus. And he says, we ought to obey God rather than man. And they were beaten. But can you imagine the memory enhancer where Peter, I mean, God allowed Peter to go back to his place of failure it gave him opportunity to pass the test. He's literally standing before the very people that Jesus stood before that struck such fear in his heart that he denied the Lord three times. To a young lady, by the way, a young maiden. She's bringing these 
you know, he can't even stand up to her, you know. And now he's standing filled with the Spirit and fully forgiven and restored. He's standing before these high, these, these religious leaders and high priests, and he with all boldness, not caring what they do to him. We ought to obey God rather than man. We're going to keep preaching the name. And they literally, second time he does it, they literally beat him and command him not to preach anymore. And, and they leave, Peter and John leave, saying, man, this, they, kind of, they went rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I mean, that's a transformation. Is that a transformation or what? And that's the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the power of forgiveness. Blessed are they that mourn. He became happy. They left rejoicing. He became happy because he mourned his sins and received the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord.